This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Ravi Bashiao. Dr. Bashiao is, is leading joint surgeon. Uh, I know specializes a great deal in hip replacements, I'm sure also in knee replacements, but a, a, a great leader in the United States and really the world in hip replacements. Dr. Bashiao, I want to talk to you about a few different co- co- concepts today, sort of what you're seeing internationally versus here in knee replacement, hip replacement, robotics, setting up an outpatient joint replacement program. In your case, it's in an inpatient hospital setting, but really focused on you know, people in and out the same day. And a little bit more. Dr. Rochelle, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, Scott, thanks so much again for having me. It's good to, good to be back. Um, as, uh, as you mentioned, my name is Ravi Bashal. Um, I'm the Director of Outpatient Hip and Knee Replacement Surgery at North Shore Orthopedic and Spine Institute in the Chicagoland area. Um, my practice is entirely devoted to minimally invasive uh, hip and knee replacement, um, and uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, working with you and your team on, uh, on several uh, events and talks in the past and uh, really find uh, these uh, discussions on trends in orthopedics to be um, really interesting for me to learn from. I, I certainly listen to the podcast and and, and read the, the newsletter uh, pretty religiously and really happy to be able to contribute and appreciate the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Let me start with one sort of general question. How did you start your specialty? How did you really get focused on your specialty specifically? Just take us a moment through that. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting, and I'm sure everybody has their own own story. As a, you know, as a, I would call myself a a, a failed athlete, meaning I had athletic ambition and was limited on the talent side of things. And I think many of us in orthopedics had a a bent towards athletics. Um, you know, if you want to take it a step a step even a step back further, uh, I think in medical school, people get a sense of whether they want to be a procedural-based person or an office-based person, and I very much wanted to be a surgeon. My family doesn't actually have a lot of medical folks in it. My parents are both preschool teachers, but I, I knew that I wanted to do medicine uh, for a long time, and, and I don't know what it was that uh, inherently drove me that way, but once I was in medical school, clearly surgery was the way I wanted to go, and orthopedics was just a natural fit for me. Um, in terms of the personalities and the type of procedures that were being done. Specifically with joint replacement, um, I, I found sort of my calling in that this is an operation that we can reliably do on folks and really give them the quality of their life back. And it's a relatively low risk proposition. So you have an operation that has really high reward, relatively low risk, and extremely excellent outcomes. And uh, as we know, uh, you know, hip replacement is consistently reported as one of the highest patient satisfaction uh, operations, usually second only to cabbage, um, which obviously, you know, uh, bypass surgery, which comes with an obviously higher set of risks and inherent issues. Um, knee replacement, um, has has traditionally lagged behind that, but I think some of the things that we're doing technologically is actually allowing knee replacement to start to approach satisfaction of hip replacements as well. So for me, the idea of being able to go in and fix a discrete issue, and in, in, you know, in most cases that's an arthritic hip or knee, and really give somebody their life and their lifestyle back um, has really been uh, you know the joy and pleasure of my life, and, and that's sort of how I ended up doing what I do. And, and take a moment and talk about, and we want to ask you about a few different things, but first international trends and how hip and joint replacements moving along versus here. I know you consult in India as well. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing there versus here and in terms of advances and how things are handled and so forth. Just a little perspective for us. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think that, um, you know, international trends uh, fall into one of two categories. We have uh, countries that are uh, severely limited by infrastructure. So one, one of the things that I, that I find the most rewarding, actually, and probably the most rewarding uh, thing that I get to do in my career um, is I participate with a group called Operation Walk Chicago, which is a charity organization that provides free hip and knee replacement to needy patients around the world. These tend to be in developing nations. Okay. So, you know, one of the missions that I helped to run is to the country of, of Nepal, which is in a very different bucket than in India, even though they're both geographically close and frankly, both very far away from the United States. So, you know, on the third world side of things, I think it's it's um, pretty self-explanatory. A lot of the things that were going on in the United States in the 80s and 90s are starting to take place there, um, particularly in Nepal. We've worked with Nepal Orthopedic Hospital closely and, and really increased their volumes. And it's all protocol driven, which is nice about joint replacement. So um, with some investment of infrastructure, um, that can be achieved in third world countries. But if you want to talk about international trends in more first world countries or, or, or countries that aren't limited um, as much by infrastructure constraints or economic constraints in, in places like India and Southeast Asia, um, the trends that we're seeing is that it, much like culture, music, movies, whatever it might be, um, they're following a very predictable path of, of kind of coming along and, and following the, the trends that we've seen defined in America and Europe, but they're catching up very quickly. And I think a lot of that has to do with technology, the internet, and availability of information. I think Total Joints is especially primed for that because so much of what we do is protocol driven. Um, the, the, the magic in the sauce is how you make the sauce. It's the recipe. And that doesn't that's not to say that individual talent or ability doesn't play into this, but really m many of the gains that we've made in terms of improved outcomes, decreased complications, decreased length of stays, they're really protocol driven and, and trend to move towards multimodal approaches to patients. And I think that's the trend that we're seeing. So uh, some of the help that I, I give places, I go over joint protocols, but what I really emphasize is that you can't be siloed. Orthopedics needs to work with anesthesia, with nursing, with physical therapy, with pain management. And once you start to break down those silos, you can really start to impact patient care. So, uh, you know, this is a very broad topic that we could talk a lot let, on. Let but me it, ask you a question. Yeah. Let Go me ahead. ask you a question. And, it, and it's, and it's uh, and bear with me on this, that so many of the great leading physicians in the United States today are people that either first generation or immigrants from India, you know, and, it, it, and it's a relative constant. I mean, people come out of medical school earlier and so forth. Does that mean that, because we're the beneficiary of that here in the United States to such a great degree, does that mean the medical community in India is also magnificent? I mean, so when you're dealing with colleagues at a, at a hospital, like you had mentioned, some of the countries might be third world countries, but places like India are very much like ours. What's the medical talent like there versus here? What do you, what do you see there when, yeah. when you work with your colleagues there? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. And, you know, my own story is my father is from Nepal. My mom is from my mom is from India. I was born here in the United States and grew up in Chicago. So I, I sort of had this interesting background where, uh, you know, I think early on, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, a lot of the talent was leaving, right? If you were a really great student in India, your dream might have been to come to the United States and practice here. And I do think that dream still exists for many people. And, and frankly, um, we are all very fortunate to be here. And, uh, 
we have a lot of advantages um, that don't exist in other countries. And, and you really see that, especially when you go on these third world mission trips. But beyond that, I think that countries like India now are starting to get their own identity to some extent. And the best are staying there to take care of the best. And I think this mentality of being able to uh, stay, in your, stay in your country if you choose and to be able to practice high level care there is becoming more prevalent. So the colleagues that I, that I work with consistently have excellent levels of training, excellent levels of education. Um, and I find that the trainees that, that we work with and talk to are, are of equal or, or better quality than what we have here, meaning you know, the, the spectrum is the same there as it is here. And people, I think, are no longer looking at the United States as the only place where you can practice state-of-the-art medicine. And I do think that that's probably a change from you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And that's increasingly the case in Europe and all, in all other parts throughout the world as well. You start to find if you're talking about cancer, you're talking about this, talking about that, whatever it might be, that there are there are pockets or large swaths of excellence in other parts of the world that are comparable or in some areas better than here as well. It's a fascinating evolution over the last generation, I would say. You know, just not just India versus the U.S., but Europe versus the U.S., Germany versus the U.S., and a lot of other places as well. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that, and I think technology has a lot to do with that. Technology, uh, the internet, sharing of information, our world has become smaller, um, and I think the one nice thing about the medical field um, is that we like to share innovation, right? That's what drives research. Um, that's what drives when we go and talk, when we go and give lectures and conferences, um, and frankly, that's that, that's the basis of so much of what you do. We like to share information uh, so that we can help other people grow, uh, and, and certainly technology has made that much more facile than and, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And, and, and take a moment on this in robotics. You would mentioned to me evolutions in robotics without vision joints, hips and knees. What do you see there with the robotics, digitally assisted surgery? How prevalent? What's the sense of how much people are using robotic implements, instruments to help them in surgery? What, what are you seeing today? Yeah, so you know, I, I like to I like to call it enabling technology, and and you touched on a few of it. Robotics is certainly probably the first thing that comes to mind, but there are other things as well, such as patient specific instrumentation, navigation, um, and other tools that we are using more and more. I think what we're realizing as, and I alluded to this earlier, hip and knee replacements are great operations with really high levels of satisfaction, but we can do better. Um, and enabling technology allows us to do things potentially more precisely, more uh, more efficiently and less invasively. Um, and I think that on the planning side of things, it allows us to be really ready with a game plan when we get to the operating room, um, which I think is a, is a huge difference. Uh, and, and, you know, just like any other field, if, you're plan if, you, if you've got a good plan going in, um, you're much more likely to execute um, efficiently and accurately. Uh, and things like, uh, you know, whether it be robotics, patient-specific instrumentation, a lot of that requires you to have some thought and insight into the case before you're in the operating room, which I really think is half the battle. And then from a technical standpoint, I think that these enabling technologies allow us to be more accurate with the placement of our components. And ultimately, that leads to better outcomes. And uh, I think that internationally, that's also being picked up on. And I think in places like India, robotics is taking off. Um, and uh, they're, not as far, they're not as far behind as you, as, as you may think. So uh, robotics, I think, is, is something particular that's, that's very prevalent in the Indian market right now. I've heard one surgeon describe the robotics and digital assisted surgery and everything else as follows. It doesn't replace a surgeon. What it does is it's an enabling tool, as you pretty much said, that will make a 
good surgeon or a great surgeon better. It just gives them more information. It's almost like in the old days you did medicine without x-rays. Now that seems crazy when, when you know, a doctor goes to just feel your body or feel your bone. You're, you like that and you think that's good, but you think he or she should have an MRI or an x-ray as well to really see what's going on. Yeah. And, 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 and similar with this, it really is, advances the craft, doesn't it? So it makes an okay surgeon better, makes a great surgeon better. It's just another tool, isn't it? It's not a replacement for the surgeon. That's absolutely right. And I, and I think that that's an important distinction in that you can't skip learning how to do the operation properly and just count on, quote, the computer to do it for you. Um, I like to think of it in terms of golf. Um, you know, if you think about Jack Nicholas, all the clubs that he used, his woods were literally made out of wood, uh, you know, persimmon wood. Um, and uh, he did the best he could with those golf clubs. If Jack Nicholas from 1975 were to play in a tournament today, with the same equipment and the same training and the same preparation, he'd be demolished. But that doesn't mean that he's not one of the all-time greats. Um, the, you know, golfers today have better equipment. They have better preparation. They have better planning. They have technology that helps them be a better golfer. So, yes, it takes people and, and it enhances their skills and, and, and ability. Um, and, and that's really the way that I like to look at it. And, uh, and I think that if we use it in a non-substitutive manner, meaning we're not we're not using robotics or computers to take the place of our thought process or to uh, make us do less work, but instead of using that, instead we're using them as enablers, um, that's going to really help us take better care of our patients and have better outcomes, which at the end of the day is what's most important for all of us. And let me ask you sort of the most important follow-up question, Ravi, Dr. Bajal. Is there a trick to reducing one's handicap? <laughs> if if I could if I if I if I knew the answer uh, I would I would be uh, doing something else right now and it probably wouldn't be doing the podcast I'd be doing a different podcast on barstool sports or something uh, but hey if you figure it out please let me know and, and I'll I'll keep it our, our little secret <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had some sense of it as well so you would mention you know you know you know the um the the child of immigrants and so many children of immigrants so much motivation, so much drive, so much energy, you know, parents come with a dream and they want their kids to do well, excel in education, stuff like that. And you're, you're sort of, um, you know, you went to Harvard, to Penn, to Washu, to University of Illinois. Do your parents ever look at you after having gone to Harvard, Penn, Washu, and Illinois and say, why not Yale? Do they ever <laughs> say that to you or do you get away with it? No, no, <laughs> you know. You know no, no. You know, I, I'll tell you, um, you know, uh, my story is not a unique immigrant story, but to me, it, it feels unique. You know, I, I, my father especially uh, came from a very small village in Nepal where I'll tell you my grandparents, um, his parents never owned a pair of shoes in their life. They were barefoot their whole life. And, uh, you know, my dad worked hard and educated himself and came to the United States and, and my mom did the same. But what I what I still find to be so unique about America in general is that in one generation, or I guess in this case, two generations, you can go from having literally no shoes um, to being an orthopedic surgeon, uh, you know, in a major metropolitan area. Um, and that doesn't come without its own set of, of, of circumstances and help, meaning I don't think that I did this all on my own. I think that I was very fortunate. I think there are so many disparities that prevent people that have been in America even for 100 years from necessarily being able to do those things. But I do think that, um, you know, in the right setting, in the right milieu, you have an opportunity to to um, excel and exceed. And, and the way that I put it is it breaks my heart when we when we go to Nepal, because if you are born the son of a shoe shiner on the street in Nepal, the chances are is that you will die 
a shoe shiner on the streets of Nepal because there's it's very difficult to to have upward mobility and in America at least we have a chance. Um, I think that most definitely there are huge disparities on access to that and we need to work on that because it's a lot e- it was a lot easier for me to have that path that you just described than it may be for somebody that did not have the social and economic support that I did growing up so by no means do I think that this is equally easy for everybody in America um, but I think that at least in America you can have a chance and we as a country need to figure out a way to have that access be more uh, equitable across the board and so you know that's really for me the beauty of, of my American dream story uh, is that we were able to do this um, and a lot of it has to do with good luck a lot that has to do with my parents and all that they all that they did, but ultimately the fact that it could happen, I think, is pretty incredible because there's many places in the world um, where that wouldn't happen, and there's probably Einsteins that are on the street that never get discovered as Einsteins because they don't have the opportunity. Let me ask one follow question on that as well. So, grandparents in Nepal that never owned shoes, talk about I forget whether it's your mother or father that came from Nepal originally. But they're halfway out of Nepal, and how did they, you know, and, and, and I guess the question I guess you have is, like, there's all these stories, all these studies on psychological studies that some of you have no shoes, have shoes, be rich, be poor, but happiness isn't necessarily dependent upon it. But talk about sort of the, I'd love to hear two things, the happiness of your grandparents living in that kind of poverty, but it wasn't okay because everybody was impoverished, or no, you know, no, because they didn't have health care, nobody's a good feed, they're worried. Or, and two, how did mother or father... And getting out of Nepal, because I mean, obviously, India, we have such this great richness of, I mean, our, our medical community would be nothing like what it is in the United States without our doctors from India and, and yeah. our nurses from all over the world and our doctors from all over the world. We just would have a, we'd have a horribly subpar group of providers here without our immigrant physicians. So the, the, the story of doctors from India is one I hear often, but talk about coming from that kind of part and, and often from, Sometimes from middle class in India, sometimes from poverty in India. Talk about the escape or the movement from Nepal. Yeah, so it's my father, and uh, it's interesting. My my, we don't know exactly my dad's birthday because if they, that was he was born on on farmland in the middle of nowhere, but he was born in the early 30s, so he's either 89 or 90. Uh, so Nepal in the 1930s uh, was like America in the 1820s. Okay, uh, I'll tell you this: I went to his village where he grew up um, in 91, I think it was, and at 92, 92, um, and uh, at that time there was still no running water, no electricity, and everything was built by hand. Still uh, at that time. In 92. Uh, so we were talking about 60 years earlier than that. So it's interesting. I never got to meet my grandparents. Um, you know, I've talked to my dad about them. They were they were basically subsidence farmers. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of Nepal at that point was what uh, was set up almost in, in you know sort of you go back to the to the Middle Ages in Europe as as a fiefdom where you know the, there's a landowner and the you subsidence farm you eat what you need and you give the rest to the guy that owns the land and that was basically the setup. Um, my dad again was lucky and 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 found. Uh, a mentor um, that took a keen interest in him and with regards to education um, and helped him become educated. And he became an educator. So he became the headmaster of a school um, near his village uh, and then just kept sort of um, uh, sort of uh, multiplying on that. He became interested in Montessori school uh, and became a trainer for, for Montessori. And, and he had a mentor um, who was based in Amsterdam who helped guide him and, you know, basically got him from Nepal to India. And then in India, he became uh, sort of a, a more known trainer for Montessori. And interestingly, uh, in 
in the late 60s, early 70s, Walter Mondale, who was uh, 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 in Minnesota at that time, had an idea to put uh, Montessori in the public schools. And, you know, through serendipity, he knew Mr. Houston. That was the, the name of the, the gentleman in Amsterdam that knew my father and said, hey, how do we start this? And he says, I just got I got the people for you. And my mom and dad were able to come over and, you know, getting a visa at that time was extremely difficult. Um, but they were able to come over and, and start teaching Montessori in public schools in Minneapolis. And that's how it happened. And it, you know, uh, I see a lot of corollaries in that I've had a lot of amazing mentors, people that have taken an interest in me that didn't need to, um, that have then catapulted me and trampolined me to the next step. So I think, you know, and as a, as I don't want to call myself an old guy now, but as an older guy now, I, my greatest joy sometimes is being able to be that mentee to other folks. So I think, you know, this is getting a little philosophical, but I think as long as we look out for each other, that's the way these things happen. But yeah, my, my dad's story from Nepal was quite unique in that it's very difficult to escape that. And if it wasn't for the mentorship of Mr. Houston and others in the Montessori community, um, I don't think that he would have ever left. Simply, absolutely fascinating. Uh, Dr. Brasio, I, I want to thank you for joining us. We've got a, we've got a time limit we try and hit just because that's, that's where people listen in and stay listening in and stuff like that, and we're about there. It is just yep. fascinating to listen to the family story and so forth. I mean, my full disclosure to our audience is not only are you one of the most well-renowned hip replacement surgeons in the in the nation, you also did my mother's hip replacement surgery, which has gone incredibly well. That's my full disclosure to our audience. I, I always like to ask how she's pleasure. doing, but not until you disclose it. So I'm, I'm glad she's still doing well. She was a great patient and had very good family support. So that was the key. She's doing great. And I'll probably be back in the second one now that COVID has sort of like hopefully made it a little safer for her to get the rehab she needs posted and something like that. I know people are doing it in all different ways as well. Anyway, yeah. Dr. Bessio, it's just yeah. always a pleasure to visit with you on every level. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Look forward to talking soon and take care.